and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 69. <laughs> Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Ravi made me do that. It had to be uh, Oh, blame me. How immature, Ravi. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, welcome to the show. This show is for you. If you remember the days of running into town on a Saturday, going into Electronics Boutique, and the wall being filled with big box PC games, Amiga games, Mega Drive games. Oh, yeah, or kind of, you know, getting a, a zip drive loaded with 30 megabytes of stuff and you could kind of download the world. Or maybe you remember firing up Netscape Navigator and watching that little uh, transfer animation with a little comet going over. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, if that memory does kind of uh, resonate with you, I've got a feeling you are going to love this week's guest. Now, it is going to be a bit of an online and kind of uh, internet special this week because we're talking to Jason Scott, who is a guy behind websites like uh, textfiles.com. He works for the mighty Internet Archive now, which is uh, one of the most ambitious projects, I was going to say online, but probably in human history. Yeah, pretty much archiving the whole internet is absolutely crazy and he's also gone pre-internet so we're talking about bbs's here he actually made bbs the documentary Mm -hmm. which i recommend to every listener this is one of the best tech documentaries i've ever seen yeah i mean he is a filmmaker and he's got a couple of really interesting uh, documentaries under his belt but also i mean you know he was there in the earliest days of bulletin boards used to run his own board in his bedroom and he's got some great stories about that golden age yeah some kind of stuff like anarchist cookbook and uh he's also a bit of a madman he kind of put Every Nintendo game online. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty brave, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, especially with our legal team. Jason Scott is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, uh, if we're sounding a little bit husky this week, um, we did have a pretty large weekend. Oh, it was one of the best weekends I've had in a a long, long, long time. Now, we went down to London for the first ever British Podcast Awards. It was a really good show. Uh, We didn't win anything, but we just went to, like, take part in it. That was fun. And we made some good contacts and... uh, you know, there was a really funny message from Adam Buxton. I think he's a great podcaster, so yeah, it was really good to see him win something. And it was great just to see podcasts getting some kind of official representation and getting like a proper award ceremony like that. And, uh, you know, I was chatting to Matt, the guy that organised it afterwards, and he said, oh, we're going to have to make this a yearly thing now because it went so well. Oh, we're going to be there every year. We we bought Paul Kitching, our graphics guy, with us as well, and he had a great time. First time in London for Paul. I know, we sh- showed him all the sights with a hangover on Sunday. Oh, well, we showed him something extra special, didn't we, Dan? <laughs> now, bearing in mind, like you said, Paul had not been to London before. Um, we both lived in London in the past. Um, but if you're going to stay in London for the first time ever, having a night in the Savoy... It's pretty up there and kind of, you know, experiences you're never going to top. Yeah, and this was crazy. We'd basically booked, like, a cheap hotel, yeah. and it was £80 each. Soon as we arrived in London, they're like, oh, your booking's been cancelled. We're like, oh, no, where are we going to be staying tonight? It's going to be in, like, a holiday inn miles away. And Dan's on the phone to them. Oh, we've got a little upgrade. Where is it? The Savoy. <laughs> and then we're thinking, right, is this going to be a really crap hotel called the Savoy? That's like miles away. Like a bed and breakfast called that or something. No, this this was on, you know, the Strand. This was the, the, the poshest hotel in London. It was absolutely ridiculous. We've got their guy in a top hat, you know, giving his little curtsies yeah, through the door. Yeah, I was like, a team of people. So we were there sipping champagne in the, uh, the Savoy Bar at two o'clock in the morning. So in all, pretty good weekend. Yeah, yeah, I only spent like 30 quid. It was great. <laughs> Apart from the way back. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, Ravi jumped on the wrong train on the way back, but, you know, we can blame the hangover for that. Yeah, I, I was trying to reserve them seats, and then the train kind of started moving. <laughs> I was like, on the phone, where are you guys? It was a relaxing journey back without you, though. I had a, had a nice nap. Yeah, yeah. A bit, got a bit of a peace, didn't you? So, uh, yeah, listen, thank you, everyone who voted for us in the British Podcast Awards. You know, we do appreciate all the votes that we got, and uh, we will be there same time next year, hopefully. Now, yeah, speaking... probably not in the support this year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. I'm going to use that website all the time, though. Booking.com, wasn't it? Uh, Hotels.com, actually. Hotels.com. Well, speaking of other podcasts as well, um, pretty sad to report that after 10 years, Andy Godoy, who was, uh, he's the founder of RGDS, isn't he? Yeah, RGDS podcast. And he's hung up his mic after 10 years. He has. And I don't think RGDS is going to be going because um, they're kind of like so solid crew. They've got so many members (laughs) and they're just going to keep lasting. You know, but Andy, he's a great guy and he's kind of got the smoothest voice in podcasting, I think. Well, second after you, Ravi. Come oh, God, no. <laughs> Croaky, horrible, hungover voice here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if, Andy, if everyone's come out of retirement and be a guest on our show, he's more than welcome. But, you know, if you don't, don't check out RGDS and uh, you know, there are some other great um, retro shows as well, we'll pop a link in our show notes. Definitely give those guys a listen. Now, before we get to Jason Scott, we just want to thank the people who make our podcast possible every week. And that is people who find it in their hearts and just donate a couple of pounds, a couple of euros couple of dollars into the running of the show and they make their place in the retro hour hall of fame now contributing this week we want to say a massive thank you to paul harrington michael keith lars bottom and paul edwards who all made donations through our website theretrohour.com if you ever want to do the same obviously everything we get goes back into the running of this show and it'll take you five seconds to do it we've got a little paypal button click that put your email in that's it at theretrohour.com now some interesting stories I've been making the headlines this week. Here's a game that I probably thought would be the last game ever to get an HD upgrade. Night Trap is coming back. Now, do you remember Night Trap originally? I, d- I do remember it because it was really controversial, wasn't it? It was like a kind of gill sleepover in a house and it was one of these early FMV video games and these guys with weird claws would be just appearing from areas. And it wasn't actually... As controversial as they kind of said. You know, the press hyped it and they did a whole, oh, worst video game ever, these girls are being attacked and stuff. But the premise was pretty stupid, to be honest. Well, like we said a couple of weeks ago when we talked about it, it was essentially just like a teen slasher movie, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, that was it. <laughs> the fact that, you know, you'd never seen proper video on a computer game really in the mainstream. I mean, this was on the Mega CD. Mm. It got released on it. It was also the game that in America was responsible for bringing in the, uh, the age classifications as well. Yeah. So historically, I mean, you know, it is actually a dreadful game. If you play it, it's just a lot of like, you know, quick time events and stuff. It's yeah, you're kind of checking fun. cameras around the house, aren't you? And you've got to see different events happening and kind of catch up with these guys. Oh, are they in this room or this room? Yeah, it's kind of like all in real time. I mean, that was pretty groundbreaking, I guess. But now they are actually doing an HD 25th anniversary re-release of Night Trap on the PS4 and Xbox One. So are they kind of touching up all the footage then? And... Well, I've been reading about this because originally I thought, what are they going to do? Are they going to like maybe refilm it with new actors and stuff? But apparently they've got like, you know, the original film on, uh, on film. You know, not like video. Oh, oh, cine reel. Yeah. yeah. So, so they can, you know, basically put it up to like 1080p. Oh, wow. So that might be quite interesting to see. But I think, you know, like I said, it's not a great piece of storytelling or by any stretch of the imagination or a fun game, but it is kind of, it was a pivotal moment in video games in a really curious era. You know, it's got some dodgy acting and all that kind of stuff. If it was a movie, you know, no one would remember it. But I think, you know, for those, it was kind of those three or four years in the early 90s where full motion video came in, everybody was trying to find a use for it and... This is an example of, you know, real just snapshot of what was happening in gaming in that era. 
Well, there's a little kind of resurgence in a FMV at the moment. I've been playing a game called The Bunker, yeah, where you're based in a bunker and it's all FMV and it's so scary. There's a guy with a hammer and a gas mask chasing you and it's just so good. <laughs> but, you know, there's a few titles that seem to be coming out that are modern FMV games in all high resolution. Well, I was playing uh, Need for Speed on the PlayStation 4. And that, yeah, that's got like um, kind of FMV roads and stuff in it as well. So there, oh. there are like proper actors in the cutscenes and stuff. So I thought it must be due a comeback because they can do it properly now, can't they? Oh, so. yeah, yeah, definitely. And those digitized figures, do you remember them like kind of Mortal Kombat and stuff yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah. They could do that <laughs> amazingly now. Absolutely. So maybe it'll all start with Night Trap. Maybe that's a game that'll bring it back big style. Yeah. So we'll like, keep you up to date on when that's going to be released. You can find out more at theretrohour.com. Now, Atari is, uh, you know, a company that I think anyone that's into retro technology and gaming has got a bit of an affinity for, you know, obviously the, the company that really started home video games consoles in the mainstream. But also, I mean, something you don't read a lot about, really, is their range of 8-bit computers. Yeah, because, you know, people always associate Atari with the arcade machines and the kind of older machines. Or the consoles. Um, the consoles, yeah. And this is all about the home 8-bit machines, and it's a book that's just come out and it is called Breakout. Yeah, how Atari 8-bit computers defined a generation. Now, obviously, I mean, you know, we talk on the show about, you know, the Amiga is one of our favourite platforms, and obviously Jay Miner, who is, you know, really the father of the Amiga, he also worked on the uh, the Atari 800 and their 400 machines, didn't he, as well? So they are kind of the, the younger brothers to the Amiga, really. Everyone kind of thinks, you know, it must be the Commodore 64, but, you know, that had no, nothing in common apart from... No, it, was, it was Atari engineers, wasn't yeah. it? So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, RJ Michael and obviously, you know, people like that worked at Atari before that. So it is cool to see, you know, this book coming out and kind of covering that story of these machines. Because there were some really, you know, I, I never owned one of those machines, but I played with them kind of retrospectively. And I know you said your brother actually had like an Atari yeah, 400. Yeah, uh, you know, it says here it was a, a 13-year production run. Yeah. So that that's quite a long period for machines, you know. Well, it's as long as like Amstrad or Sinclair, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's like, because um, I remember they did actually... In the end, they um, they kind of repackaged the you know the, the, the older eight bit machines to look like the ST, didn't they? Like uh, the XL and XE lines. Do you yeah, remember those ones? Yeah. They were really cool. But I think it's good to get a proper book all about uh, you know these kind of these machines that were really powerful. So you look at a lot of the games on them, and I think you know graphically and the audio, a lot of them were better than like Commodore sixty four games. Yeah, and it kind of says you know it's it's like a love tribute to these systems and the games, but also it covers the bad management and the kind of stuff that came with these uh, computer companies. Well, it was quite interesting because, you know, Atari obviously they did the console thing and it was really when Jack Tramiel went there that they kind of changed into a computer company because he wanted it to be like Commodore Mark II, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, a lot of it was just kind of him trying to get revenge. So, And then obviously they went back to roots with the Atari Jaguar at the end, but, you know, mm. it was a little bit too late by then. But this book actually, if you go to uh, Extreme Tech, Com. It's published by Ziff Davis, but there is um, a few excerpts of the book that you can read here as well, and uh, there is, you know, different versions. You can download a, you know, a Kindle version of it, or you can get an actual hardback copy of the book. So I think when you start reading it, you'll want to read more. And I've seen this everywhere, you know, so I think this is going to be a really interesting read, and it's a decent price. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll put that in our show notes this week if you want to uh, get the link to download it. Breakout, how Atari 8-bit computers defined a generation. Now, speaking of new things that are out that you can download, there's a new old-school Sonic game just come out. Oh, nice. Now, you what? might be thinking, what, Sonic Mania? No, no, no. That's not out yet. This is a fan-made game. Oh, wicked. What what systems is on? This is on uh, on Windows. So this is called Sonic Time Twisted, and they've been making this for 12 years. Wow. So this is a fan-made, unofficial Sonic the Hedgehog game. Um, I downloaded it before. It's completely free. 
you can download it and install it on your PC. It does actually have a bit of a problem running in Windows 10. You need to download DirectX 9 for okay. it to work. So, you know, I found that in the forums. If anyone downloads it, they're like, it doesn't work. Try that. Uh, but, you know, there, there is actually a video on their official website here. And if you watch it, honestly, you could probably not tell the difference between this and, like, you know, one of the later Mega Drive games. Oh, it looks absolutely fantastic. And, you know, you could play Sonic, Knuckles and Tails in this as well. And there's 10 bosses and, like, 28 acts as well. So this is a proper release. It's amazing. Uh, I'd love to see this them do this on the original Mega Drive or something. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it, if the back ported it to that? Oh, God. But even if you listen to, like, you know, the, uh, the music stuff... They've kind of based it on Sonic CD. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's got like all the all the Sonic sound effects and all that are in it as well, and it's really authentic. And you know, I was kind of looking at this, and I thought, um, you know, if it was Nintendo, this would be took down in a day, wouldn't it? Yeah, twelve years, Sega, let them go. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, a few people were saying in the comments, uh, better download this quick before Sega's lawyers get onto it. But actually, I mean, from what I've been reading, the actually the Sonic team and Sega actually kind of encourage fan projects. Nice, and they're even saying they've got fourteen three D special stages. So, you know, you used to get the old 3D special stages in Sonic, like that tunnel running one and that one where you're on the big circle on Sonic 3. Yeah, there's very similar stuff to that. There's one where you've got to race like a Metal Sonic and you like, oh, jump that's over. that's cool. So, I love those. And the music was always amazing on those. And you can even use like a, a PS4 controller as well because it feels weird playing Sonic with a keyboard. Yeah, so, yeah, that's uh, hard. This is absolutely worth a download. I mean, you know, if you, if you want like a... Obviously, Sonic Mania is coming out. So I'm hoping, you know, because everyone said Sega will be fine with it because it's like an old school game. But obviously the timing... It's slightly unfortunate being that Sonic Mania is coming out, you know, this year, but hopefully, you know, it, it's been up there for two weeks and hasn't been taken down yet. Um, but do grab that. Sonic Time Twisted, we'll show that in this week's show notes as well. Yeah. Now, the Spectrum Next is a project we've been keeping an eye on pretty much since, well, day one of this show, really, haven't we? Yeah, because um, Jim Bagley pulled one out of his bag <laughs> and showed us about, actually, around this time last year, wasn't it? Because yeah. it was uh, at the Revival event. Yeah, we saw Jim there, and he, uh, he said, do you, want, do you want to come see the Spectrum next? And we're like, well, you've got one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a GI front of the year. So, um, yeah, we watched it running, and it's really interesting. I mean, this is essentially, if you haven't been keeping up with this project, because, you know, there have been so many, like, new Spectrum hardware and yeah. clones and stuff that have come out over the last couple of years. But this, I mean, this has got a bit more authenticity than the a lot of the other ones, I think, because well, well, it's actually designed by, you know, the guy who did design the original ZX Spectrum, Rick Dickinson. And it's and it's like a continuation, you know. They're trying to. That's why it's the next. It's yeah. not. It's not a recreation of an old Spectrum. It's if Spectrum made the next one, what would it be? And this is it, you know. Well, you're looking at this. It's got HDMI sockets, so you can play it on like modern screens. Um, but there is out- output if you want to put it on like a CRT, you know, for old school. Um, that old school feeling. It's got two processor modes, and it's got the Z80 in there as well. Um, a 3.5 megahertz to 7 megahertz plus. It's got 512 kilobytes of RAM that you can put up to 2.5 megs, which well, they, is loads for a They second. say as well that they've kind of solved the color clashing on it. Now, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. And it's there's there's kind of a thing that my friend mentioned, Paul Smallman actually, yeah. said on his Facebook today. And he said, you know, there's all these developers making titles for older Spectrum stuff. Are they all going to go to the Spectrum next now? And then you're going to have to get that machine. But, you know, it's it's £99 for the board. That's that's insanely cheap, isn't it? Yeah. For what it is. And it's got, like, SD card support on there as well, new video modes. I mean, we were watching, like, Jim Bagley was playing a movie on it. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't <laughs> it was, he streaming it? Was, it? Yeah, absolutely <laughs> insane. 
And uh, the full machine's 175. Is that in the um, case and everything? Yeah, yeah. And it looks like, uh, you know, one of the uh, the small, like, plus three spectrums, doesn't it? A bit kind of that QL kind of keyboard. But, uh, you know, I think this project's awesome. And, uh, you know, didn't it make its Kickstarter goal in, like, a day? Yeah, yeah, it was just funded, like, bam, straight yeah. away. So there's obviously huge interest for this. And, uh, you know, we've been saying on the show for a while, I mean, I did own a Spectrum for uh, about an hour once before I blew it up accidentally, of course. Um, but, you know, I want to kind of get a bit, bit more in the specy scene. And I kind of toyed with, do I get, like, you know, plus two on the originals? I think I'm probably going to get one of these. Yeah, because I need to dip my toe into the 8-bit world because I've been 16-bit, done and I haven't got an 8-bit machine in my house. It's awful. I'm doing a retro podcast. <sighs> we need to get you sorted yeah. out. At least a Commodore 64, Ravi. Yeah, on. yeah. Well, I've been looking. <laughs> yeah, so if anyone's got any, uh, any, anything going spare in the cupboard. Yeah, any, any, any dusty Vectrex. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into this week's uh, special guest, Jason Scott, uh, this is kind of quite fitting because one of the things that Archive.org have been working on recently is uh, implementing a load of like uh, early Mac titles you can play we mentioned on last week's show yeah and apple too as well you know well you can now turn your iphone into a retro mac yeah this is a really cool little stand it's, it kind of just looks like a sleeve that you slide your iphone into but the, it changes the whole case into kind of a little retro mac yeah it's amazing yeah so you're looking through i mean it's kind of like imagine a classic Macintosh was like the size of your hand. Yeah. It's shrunk down to that size. You can get it in like, you know, the original um, Mac beige color or black. And you slide your phone in and your phone essentially becomes a screen of this little mini Mac. Then you can use your Bluetooth keyboard. But also, I mean, you know, you could play these early Mac titles using the web interface in archive.org, for example. Yeah. And it's got the old hello printed in the background. Now, the picture they have has a mini keyboard and mouse. I don't know if that comes with the original one. That would be cool. Like a tiny little one that you could use with your iPhone. But <laughs> You need like a pin to use those keys. Yeah, it? so it. It's pretty cool. I think, you know, it's uh, it's not really like a case that you're going to put in your bag and take out all day with you. But it kind of reminds me a bit of those, you know, the arcade units that you put an iPad in. Something that, you know, a bit of novelty for home. Or Yeah, and it's cool that you're using this like really new piece of technology from Apple. Yeah, converting it back with this little thing, you know. Yeah, turning this £600 phone into, uh, into something <laughs> 30 years old. Yeah. The things we do in the retro community. Yeah. That's it. So if you do want to check that out, of course, that'll be in our show notes as well. Right, thank you very much for checking out episode number 69 of the Retro Hour podcast, The Big 7-0 next week. Oh, my God. Can't Where's, believe it, 70, we've got there. Where's time going? Yeah, it's mad. So we please, need more guests. <laughs> <laughs> Get working, Ravi. Yeah. So please do join us for that. I'll be out again next Friday. Your little treat before the weekend, available from all of your favourite podcast clients, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes. And of course, if we're not on one of your favourite platforms, you do people you know, occasionally write in and say, oh, I wish you were on like, you know, Spotify we had the other day, didn't we? which we are working on at the moment. But I do let us know if there's any services you want to see the show on. We'll uh, we'll get on the case. And now then, let's get into um, a real bit of nostalgic online and internet history with this week's special guest for the next 45 minutes on the Retro Hour, Jason Scott. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, Thank you for joining us, Jason Scott. Well, very glad to be here. Now, uh, obviously, we're going to get some amazing stories from you, I'm sure, about you know stuff like textfiles.com and archive.org. Before we get into all that, though, I thought it might be quite interesting to kind of rewind your personal history. So where did it all begin for you, then? What was your first experience with a computer? Oh, with a computer. Okay, mm-hmm. well, to that, you got to go back around 1979, uh, 1980, when my father, working for IBM, was able to bring home computers that the uh, engineers were playing with, both commercial computers and kind of toys. 
And among them was a Commodore PET, which uh, was basically my first computer and which I played around on way too much. And I had two siblings and that is the big fork when they keep getting tans and I get paler and I'm the one, you know, every family, it seems when they get something like a computer, there'll be, everybody gets to use it, quote unquote, but there'll be one who kind of lives with it and is the one who never leaves it. And that was me. So I was playing around with, you know, writing basic and saving stuff to a cassette tape and all that early stuff. And so my very first computer was a, a Commodore PET followed by an IBM PC right at the beginning, something like the first 400 or 500 made uh, that dad once again got to bring home from work. And uh, so that kind of set me on the IBM path. And, and since then, I've dabbled in lots of different home computer platforms. So, so for me, it's been, you know, <laughs> like well over 30 years with these things. And the love affair is not over yet. And um, would you kind of do programming or cracking or anything like that back in the days? But, you know, the funny part is, is I was and continue to be a terrible programmer. Um, I am one of those people who's good with the building blocks. Like, I'm very good at like, oh, this part does this, this part does this. Like, you might get with a toy or with an early electronics kit. I'm not a developer, like, who thinks in terms of, you know, libraries and maths and everything else. I, I just don't function in that area. So, for me, it was I'd type in a basic program from a from a magazine or I would break into a program that was running and try to understand what was going on. And I wrote some things, but they're going to look like a beaver dam in terms of just mess, you know, me as a kid, just like, I think this works. Maybe this works, you know, just total toys. And I didn't go into computers as a career for a long time. Cause I didn't want to ruin it. Like I didn't want to become that so so I did a lot of early stuff like that and I was a major end user like I loved playing other people's stuff or getting my hands on other people's stuff and playing with it like that was really my gig when was the uh, first time you kind of went on a network or or a kind of early online experience so I'm ridiculously lucky uh, once again my dad um, my parents were divorced and so my father would get us on Tuesdays and every other weekend and he there was no way he was going to like walk away from a day like there was no way my father just the way he is was ever going to say I can't make it to the kids today so he would take us even when it made no sense just to have us for a few hours and so my father would work hard at IBM and so sometimes he would bring me to his job at IBM to this incredible building in uh, New York called the Thomas J. Watson Research Center. It's a it's an architectural marvel. It's a beautiful low building uh, that, that's got lots of glass. And he would bring me into this wonder world after hours. And the problem is, is now you've got your kid in your office. What are you going to do? How are you going to amuse him? And so his solution was to put me on a computer, which was an IBM 3279 terminal connected into mainframes that he knew the secret games password which was L-U-U-D-I-I, Greek for games. You type that, you get all the secret games all the developers had put on there. And these were slot games, adventure games, uh, poker games, you know, like all these crazy games. And of course, in 1981, they look so much better than anything you're going to see on a commercial product yet. These are really expensive terminals. So I was like, it was like I was shown, you know, dad's 
space station. And then a little bit later, I get to tinker with cars. Like I got to use this. I knew what computers could do. And I, that's where I first bumped into the adventure program, which later informed me making a documentary about it. That's where I first kind of ran into like how to do weird computer graphics tricks or the game of life or anything. And then I went back down to a machine that's as powerful as a, you know, a broken watch. Well, I know, like, for me, one of the most magical experiences I remember as a kid was, you know, when you dial up another computer for the first time from home, whether that be a bulletin board or, you know, onto a uh, Usenet server or whether that be the web. I mean, did you remember your, your earliest experiences of getting online at home? Yeah, the weird thing is, is I absolutely do. I absolutely remember <laughs> the, the, the spare bedroom in my buddy Chris Buford's house uh, at his grandparents' house where he and his mom and his brother were staying and him saying, did you know that there's this thing called computer bulletin boards and me going, no idea what you're talking about and him getting a phone, calling a number. It's making a terrible noise. <laughs> he plugs it into the cradle of the 300 baud modem and text starts coming over. I, I barely comprehend the magic going on. We called a number and words are now coming and you're able to manipulate a computer elsewhere. Like that was life-changing for me. And we got our hands on a book. I think it was called the computer phone book. And it was a list of bulletin boards around the country. This is like a very, very, very early book. And um, you could call a number. Of course, you learned very quickly that it cost you a lot of money, but calling locally we were able to call a couple. And then when my father got a modem, um, I think that was both amazing and the source of wonderful consternation over the years as a couple really big phone bills came through. Way huge phone bills than, uh, than what we think of today. To think about the fact that in the old days, uh, I think that's the hardest part to get across to people when they look at the old days is you know that you didn't want to call more than 20 miles from your house because if you did, you'd be incurring insane charges. And if you did think you were going to, you wanted to wait until after 11 p.m. because they dropped the cost by like 40 or 50 or 60%. So that time base of it's cheaper to work at night because resources aren't being used is like pervasive through the whole hacker ethic of many years because that's when nobody's around. That's when all the systems run faster. That's when you can get through. And so we were doing that. That's quite a way to spend my, you know, age 11, 12, 13, back in the early 80s. Well, uh, when people kind of mention the start of the net, they always talk about kind of early World Wide Web and they always miss BBS or FidoNet. And these networks were really important and lasted for quite a long time. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, but history is full of that. History is full of, like something kind of becomes the talisman for that's the moment at which the world became alive. And then if you start to research, and I'm talking anything, uh, anything from phones to radio to, to um, cars, you'll see all these predecessors done kind of, you know, hack jobs, ad hoc, weird, bodged together things done by people who are living and breathing it, sometimes being killed by it, sometimes being injured by it, sometimes wasting their fortunes on it, only to have it all paved over with a beautiful velvet rope road of, and then it began, right? I mean, there's still an argument about when the web truly begins. Obviously, Tim Berners-Lee is right there, but there's predecessors. There's, there's Archie and there's the, the, the um, 
gopher system. And, and, and before that, there's bulletin boards. And before that, there's, you know, all sorts of teletype communication going on over the radio. And, you know, there's all sorts of predecessors. And, and, and they each have their valid balance and they each have their meaning. And uh, I don't think it's a smack. I, I just think if you wander into a subject you don't know, it's very helpful to be given a back of the pamphlet two paragraph explanation of like it used to be really tough now here's five of them and that's what you choose from well you made an interesting point that you know you'd always dial within like a 20 mile radius of where you lived but i suppose that did kind of kind of build up local communities of online users and uh you would have a much more of a sense of local community about being online then oh yeah no that's absolutely the thing that's lost that they sort of have tried to bring back in some ways with phones. But one of the whole strengths of the bulletin board system community is that if somebody said, I think we should all get together. How about this Friday at, at Shakey's? Everyone would know exactly what Shakey's they were talking about. And like they would all go to that Shakey's and they'd meet up and say, hey, what do you want to do? I don't know. You want to go see a movie? You want to go get some pizza somewhere else? Do you want to go? You know, well, they're not going to say, do you want to go drinking? But, you know, maybe they will say you want to go drinking at my parents' house. But you know, it was this sense of here's this world and it's, you know, our local place. And we happen to have this online component that persists and allows our computers to communicate with it. And it's all kind of enveloped in it. You know, somebody brings um, like the first time I really encountered punk was visiting a bulletin board system friend, super clean cut kid. And he was like, you got to hear this. And he plays the dead milkman for me. And, and I, you know, I wouldn't have heard that for years um, as a kid, except for my bulletin board system friend mentioned it or different games or different movies that people talk about. I wouldn't have heard about them. That goes away with the web because the web is by its nature ubiquitous and worldwide or at the very least geographically disparate. And, 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 and unless people have done certain kinds of work, like with web forums or other things, there's a big effort to obfuscate how many people from around the world are interacting and where they are at any given moment. Now, with phones, we kind of saw some of that come back. Uh, we definitely saw cases where people could, you know, to some extent, like send Twitter messages and hashtag them for a certain location and everybody's here. And you see that attempt to kind of like make the online world and the offline worlds combine. But back then, you had no choice. It was all wired down. It was a community. That was the world. Um, so I think people have missed that. So they'll listen to uh, me talk about old bulletin boards or they'll work with old bulletin board system artifacts and they'll forget that like everything written is being on this very clunky machine that barely has maybe 200, 300K to, to store things and that people are waiting in line serially to call up and leave a message and then get off again. So they tend to be small messages and, and all these little factors are, are gone. And of course the time sink, I mean, to sit there, you have to sit on the computer and type it with the computer you're connected to. You, you can't, pre-write it unless you're crazy and so as a result that behavior is kind of odd like all these little functions and pieces of the history are gone um unless you really seek them out well did you ever run your own board i did i ran a bulletin board system called the works bbs uh 1987 through 88 then i went to college uh, my father <laughs> forbid me from having a computer for the first year of college he didn't want me distracted and I gave the computer bulletin board over to a young kid named Dave who ran the works for another 
oh, I want to say four or five years, then handed it off to another kid, then handed it off to another kid and uh, continued for like 10 years, this thing. Um, so that was my first bulletin board. I, I was what was called a co-sysop on other bulletin boards before that. Like I helped run them, but that was my first moment, you know, my phone number, my call this and get this and everything else. So I do have it, but at best a dilettante, you know, at best I ran it a little bit and I saw the documentary, BBS, the documentary, and it's absolutely yeah. fantastic. It really shows that kind of sense of community. And the fact that you've got each areas in a section, so you've got like the art guys with their ANSI wars, mm-hmm. and then you've got the hackers and the freakers on one, and it's, it just really shows all the different elements of that early community. Yeah, I, I had done this site, textfiles.com, which is how most people knew me in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I had collected all of these text files from bulletin board systems in the 1980s. And in the 1990s, I realized, oh my, nobody seems to have them. And so I put them all up on a website and it got an enormous amount of attention and, and many more contributed text files. It's, and it's still up, uh, still gets a lot of hits. People still enjoy that old stuff. And... What happened is that one day, uh, you know, each bulletin board system had a number. So you'd call that phone number. And I thought one day, wouldn't it be fun to kind of gather all the phone numbers listed in all the text files on textfiles.com? And why don't I make a list of every bulletin board there ever was? Like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a fun weekend project? And so within a few days, I had a list, I think it was like 35,000 of them, you know, separated by area code and and it got mentioned on Slashdot, which at the time was quite a powerhouse. And suddenly everybody is giving me updates and people are handing me additional text files and handling me uh, all these bulletin board system lists. But one of the things that came out of it was that a lot of people started writing me. And it was a weird thing. It was like the floodgates had been opened. They had, they had basically lived this life. Nobody remembered it. They had no occasion to bring it up. And they would write me these five and 10 paragraph rants about how important bulletin board systems were. And after about literally a hundred of these, I thought, you know, nobody ever made a movie about this. Like, wow, it's 2001 and bulletin board systems are essentially dead as a dial up thing. And nobody's going to tell this story and they're all going to die and we're not going to know it. And I spent years on those things. No, I'm not going to, you know. And and I had a latent film degree I wasn't using because I was doing other work. And I thought, you know what? I I have a film degree. I'll make the movie. And so that only took, what, four years? And it involved traveling thousands of miles and visiting 30 states and going to a whole pile of homes for the first time and then talking about bulletin board systems. And, And I tried to pepper it with both figures that were heroes in my past whose names just kind of floated in my mind like Ward Christensen who invented or co-invented what we think of as the dial-up bulletin board system and, and created Xmodem, the, the first way to transfer binary files dependably. And, and, and then other people who were just bulletin board system folks who just happened to use them. The BBS documentary when it came out in 2005 was seven episodes. You know, it was like five and a half hours or something of footage plus another couple hours of footage. And and it's all about everything I could think of with bulletin board systems. And I kept waiting for another group to go, well, he did it wrong. Like, he really didn't go about it right. Let's fix it. And uh, it's been 10 years and nobody has. And so 
I guess I'm it. <laughs> I guess I'm the bulletin board system documentary, which is good because I own bbsdocumentary.com. But the, the art scene episode you referred to is funny because all the people I interviewed are in their late or mid-20s. And they're talking like hardened veterans about something that <laughs> happened when they were 15 or 16, right? So they're all just like, oh, yeah, we didn't even know we we're going to do this. You know, like they're really talking like veterans. So one of them in there, he's like 23 in there. And he's got his like leather chair and he's got his little, you know, lava lamp. And that guy's got like two kids, totally married, you know, fat and happy living out in the suburbs um, and I see stuff from him and I'm like, well, I, I'm glad I nailed out that little part of your history because now he'll be able to play it for his kids, you know, when they're old enough. So I'm watching people's lives go on. So it was pure luck. Well, this quest that you've got to, you know, kind of preserve like, you know, the digital history, as it were. I mean, you did mention textfiles.com as well, which is such an interesting website. And you've even got some stuff on there. Like, I remember at school, there'd always be a floppy disk that everybody would copy. Um, Jolly Rogers cookbook slash anarchist cookbook. Everyone seems oh, to have sure. a copy of that. And you've actually got that on there as well. I mean, do you think that oh, yeah. was important to early online culture? I think so. I mean, I'm actually, what I love is that I'm actually quoted in an academic book about the precedence of bomb files throughout American <laughs> history. I love that somebody sat down and made an academic work, and it's called The Wrong Hands. And it's a history of, you know, how bomb files kind of like date back to like the Revolutionary War and go up through bulletin board systems. And, and the fact is, is a lot of this information, as this book showed me, basically comes from the army. Like the army has to make books on how to make lots of weird devices and weapons and things. And then sometimes civilians have them, and then other times they don't want civilians to have them. And that oscillating factor has, you know, persisted in American culture anyway for many, many, many years. So there are these floating how to make like a mine or how to make like a bomb of some sort that kind of like float around. And it gets picked up by bulletin board system culture. And some people really hang on it. And I I think I addressed anarchy files, as they're called, in the uh, in the documentary. And what's really functional about it and where I continue to, to say is I think for, like, young people and I think especially young men, um, it's a sense of having power less than having intention. I think it's a case of same thing with phone freaking, of, like, getting free phone calls or learning how phones work. You walk around in a world where you have very little agency as a child. You you can't choose when you're going to eat. You can't choose when you're going to get to go to school. You can't choose if you're going to go to this movie or not. Like, your parents are controlling a ton to some extent. And this lets you have some level of like, oh, yeah, but I know stuff other people don't. I think it's also and, the fact that you own yeah. something you're not meant to as well. I mean, it's like, you know, well, yeah. we couldn't get hold of any of the ingredients, you know, to do this stuff. You'd never want to. But the fact you have this disc and you keep it secret at the back of your box and, you know, no one's meant to know about yeah. it. I mean, absolutely. And it's weird. If you look at a lot of movies, um, especially through the 80s and the 90s, um, I don't catch young adult films as much now. But if you if you watch a lot of, like, young adult films, a lot of the plots will actually center around the kid has a knowledge or power that the other kids don't have. They could use it for good or for bad or for self-indulgence or to be a hero. And and that's kind of all baked into it. Like kids want to know that they have a place in the world and that they're 
gifted with some knowledge or some secret that others don't have. Well, uh, you tend to cover the kind of, I'd say, the darker side of the internet, especially with some talks you've done at DEF CON about like, the history of piracy and <laughs> uh, stuff yeah. like that. Do you actually find that piracy's helped you with archiving and kind of finding titles that... <laughs> You know, well, pi- rather so piracy in the in the in the broader sense is just any kind of unauthorized copying. And so, uh, sometimes people will get hung up on, well, it costs if you sell something that you didn't make. I know all of the different intellectual arguments back and forth, but I will say that absolutely, history-wise, piracy has been immeasurably helpful in knowing about things that existed and serving as a checklist on how to find originals or to get our hands on kind of extant products or uh, company information that otherwise we might not have even known about if, if somebody hadn't pirated it and copied it over and put it somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of software out there, and there's a lot of other things out there that are you know media or transferable digital files now that I, I honestly think would have sunk without, without any trace. Like, many times you go back to the original creators of software or movies or anything, and they don't have a copy. Like, they've long ago thrown it out. They... They got married. They shifted houses. They threw stuff out. They're like, that's that's not important. And then later comes some geek who says, well, you know, you were the first occasion of the da 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 We would love to have original notes. And he's like, couldn't tell you. Um, so in many ways, um, I have found what people call piracy is just in many ways just really indulge, uh, really intense, really, uh, you know, archaeology. Yeah, it's I kind mean, of like... Um... When I, I remember when lots of people used to pirate and they would, you know, have absolutely thousands of programs and it would just be the amount oh, sure. of programs that they had. They were kind of archiving themselves. You know, they'd never use the latest version of 3D Studio Max, but to have it would be, you know... <laughs> yeah. Every version, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, again, I, you know, again, I, I always kind of pop that back to the whole power thing. It's weird, really. Um, I I remember this feeling in the early 2000s when I got my hands on a whole pile of Atari 2600 or Atari VCS games. And it was like, here's, you know, 600 games. And it only fit like two megabytes. It was tiny because of the way they were. And I know I'm not going to play 600 games, but there was something about knowing that I was holding it and protecting it that was very meaningful to me. Or to know that, like, you get to finally see how it all came out. I, I think we have that big urge. And also at the time to just be able to say i could at any given moment boot up this and i can do it um that's a very powerful feeling and i think you get people who just did it um you know right now i'm doing a lot of work with apple II collectors um i chose the apple II to do work on because a it doesn't have the same fervent collecting that the commodore 64 had um just completely different approaches and also, I happen to have a bunch of people who really want to help preserve it. So there you have that army. And then finally, I think it's doable. Like, I don't think that there's more than maybe thirty or 40,000 programs in total that ever came out in any way for the Apple II. I think we can get them. And so we've been aggressively doing it. But one of the side effects of that is I've got a lot of um, really interesting people who are mailing me their collections. So these are in toto, like, you know, 400, 500 floppy disk collections being mailed to me in a box. And it's interesting to me to see which games and which programs are traveling throughout the U.S. Like they kind of sell themselves. They're small pirated versions of the 
larger games, the larger programs with crack screens, with like proud declarations of who was able to lift the protection. And I have found variations. I have found cases where people have cracked it either independently or they have modified the crack. They've pirated the pirates by putting their own handles on top of the other handles. Um, I have seen weird little compilations that you would think wouldn't live for more than a minute, but they will come from all over the U.S. Like I'll see that compilation over and over and over again. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that people would collect them this way and then they would sit on them. I mean, they would just, I would see somebody would have magic window, which is a, a word processor. And then like four other word processors. And I'm like, I think you're only going to be using one, but you've got all four. Okay. And, and same thing with like certain kinds of um, utilities, disc utilities, they'll have these compilation discs with 50 different disc utilities. And I'm, I'm wondering why, but they did it. And it's consistent throughout everyone interacting with their computer. So I think it was just a bunch of interesting psychological needs being filled by these machines. And, and, and I mean, if you felt powerful on an Apple too, you felt pretty powerful. You know, you were making this metal, this metal move to your whim. So, well, one of the services you work with today is obviously the uh, you know the massive um, internet archive, archive.org. What are the most popular parts of uh, of that site then? The Internet Archive, which was founded by uh, multimillionaire Brewster Kale back in the '90s, and which hired me in 2011 in such a way that the announcement was funny because a lot of people were like, "I thought you were working there." They thought I was involved in it, and and to this day, I'll get people who think I founded it. Um, but I'm very loud and I'm very out front, so that's why I think people think that. But when I joined them, things that I had been doing up to that point in terms of digital collecting or um, putting together contacts with people who had old archives, all of that jumped into light speed mode. And you know, on a given day, I'll be uploading several hundred gigabytes of data into the archive from various sources, or I'll be importing a whole bunch of items from one area to another. And you know, my job is like, just mess around archiving things and talk to people and get your hands on stuff. And, and as a result, um, you know, I'm getting so much more done than, I mean, in one day, I probably do more than I did in the 10 years of the, the 1990s in terms of like computer anything. And what's rewarding is that the Internet Archive has all of these different things. Um, see, I did enter your question uh, that it, people really want to go to it. Four and one of them, of course, is the Wayback Machine, which is this incredible project where they have been archiving as many websites as they can for decades and then making it relatively easy to pull it back up again. So you can go to a site and say, do you have? And the answer will be, oh, we have captured the front page and some of the other pages on and off for 15 years. Would you like to see what it looked like in 2001? Would you like to see this website that went away, but we have a copy? So the Wayback Machine is by far, I mean, half of our traffic or more. In the early 2000s, um, Brewster started to move into archiving a lot more human knowledge. So he started to archive movies and music and books. And then when I joined up, we heavily started uh, saving software. That was what I was originally hired for. And they turned out I had all these other bonus skills they could use. Well, uh, but one I was hired to like make software good. And so we have been adding thousands of CD-ROM images. We have been making programs playable at the Internet Archive. Um, we have been grabbing every computer magazine, every game magazine, every 
major report, thousands of manuals, well, um, you know, just trying to make a corpus of material that enables you to say, oh, man, I sure loved using bulletin board systems. Whoa, here's a bunch of bulletin board system magazines. Here's a bunch of bulletin board system training tapes. Here's a bunch of books and here's manuals and being able to build a much more accurate reference material. Well, um, one thing that I find really interesting is uh, there was this kind of sense of um, temporary with the early World Wide Web. So we had sites like GeoCities, mm. Angel Fire, and people would make their own little kind of websites on there. And it's often their first homepage. And I find it interesting that you are trying to archive these as well. Oh, I think they're critical. I mean, I think that, you know, people forget how hard it was to print things and certainly to distribute them. Like if you were a printer or somebody who wrote a certain kind of book or whatever, or you ran a newspaper, you know, then people, of course, would get to see and hear what you said. And if you were lucky as a, you know, a mother of two who's writing a letter to your local paper, it might get printed in there and you'd, you'd be over the moon. But to be able to be told that you could, on this worldwide network that can be reached all over, say anything you want and then add color pictures and, and even sounds and, and be able to make a statement and have it persist online where anyone could reach it with this simple URL. Like, that's magical. Like, it's boring now, but it's magical back then. And it's very intriguing to me to see what people thought the world needed from them or what they needed to give the world. You know, sometimes it's just people need to know about my undying love for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then other people will be, here's the story of my husband who died, you know, at war when we were first married. And, and, I, and here's all the pictures I have of him. Like, Or here's my genealogy of my family. I want to share it with you. Or... You know, uh, I am a, I am a, I'm going to cast spells and I have angry things I want to say about people and, and so on, like infinite. And it's so important. And, and, and they did it without really having a, a plan, like what they're going to do with it. They weren't trying to monetize it. They weren't trying to gain ads. They just found out that they could speak to more people than their entire genetic line. And I think that's amazing. And, and so I, I find it infuriating when these things are chummed under and turned into dust because somebody decides to move a five to a four on a you know Excel spreadsheet you know in some office. I think it's amazing stuff, and I think I think it was like true folk art, and I think that now a lot of it is absorbed into um, Facebook. But we will see this now, where if somebody creates a methodology for somebody to create works online and gives them the tools to do it, people will just go nuts. They'll, they'll, they'll go crazy adding amazing things. Uh, and, and unfortunately, they don't persist because a lot of these places aren't made with an eye towards what do we do for 50 years. Well, um, years. I, I remember, for example, my first website was with a friend, which was about pyrotechnics from theaters. So we'd just go on that and we'd get hits from American generals looking at it and all this kind of stuff. Um, sure. But I also remember... Reference materials are amazing, by the way. I mean, reference materials for technology in the 90s, like serial cables, which are you know gone now. If you want to find them, you kind of have to go to the Internet Archives archive <laughs> of a serial cable layout. Like, that's where it's going to be. And And it was kind of hard as well, because I'd say many elements of the sites would be 
to prove that people were going there. So you'd have a hit counter. Guest you'd, book. You'd have a guest book, you know, or, and that would be your main achievement, would be actually just seeing the interaction back and seeing that people have seen your site. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the same as a bulletin board when the phone would ring and you'd be like, that's somebody, um, you know, <laughs> um, on my computer. I actually have a story from the BBS documentary that I don't believe it's, no, it's, I don't think it's in the movie. And I don't think it's, I think he didn't let me put it in anywhere. <laughs> I have a recording of it, but he didn't let me put it. And what it was, was he had a bulletin board system and it had two phone lines so people could chat. And so he had it in his bedroom because that was the part of the house where they could put the bulletin. So, you know, the phone would ring, which drove his wife nuts and people would connect and use the bulletin board system. Right. And the wife is taking a slight interest in it, but not a crazy interest, but she's able to watch stuff go by on the screen. And she realizes that two people have been plotting an ongoing love affair using the bulletin board. You know, this couple who are married to other people would connect to the chat system on the bulletin board and plan an affair. And she was livid. He told me she was, she was like, in our bedroom, <laughs> this, this sin is happening. And so from that point on, whenever she saw one of them call up, if the other one called, she would hang up the other one. Like she would just step in and disconnect the phone and like stop this sin from occurring in their bedroom. An early moderator. <laughs> yeah, heavily moderating. You know, totally, totally corrupt mods, as they would put it now. You know, it's corrupt mods. She doesn't approve. But it was like she saw it as a strong, I mean, th these are very real feelings. She saw this interaction as having been interacting physically in her room. And it's not a virtual space. It's here's my room. Here's this interaction where I live, where I'm sleeping. And, um, you know, we don't have that in the same way. Like the world where the phone lives is a world that's not, you know, here. We use the phone to communicate out to it. Like we've mentally absorbed that. We don't think of it as like here. Like it's to me, it's amazing. And, and so for people who are on these early online services and these early web page creation services, like they're learning it all because they know that it will go live in this amazing machine in the clouds that holds all of this technology and all of these people and, and, and will, you know, 20, 30, 80, a hundred people will come see their story where before they could never have dreamed of that. Still, I, I gotta say wonderful time. <laughs> I don't look at it with like that weird, like, oh, yeah, man, they didn't know what they were doing. It was all kind of clunky and crappy. I'll see that kind of tone taken. And I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll be like, remember those embarrassing old days on GeoCities? And I'm like, you mean those brilliant mm. revolutionary times that the people rose up and made the, the, the First Amendment in the United States golden, uh, a golden rainbow of amazing, you know, Achievement? Yeah, that time. That, that's me. <laughs> I do love that you guys have preserved that, though. I mean, you know, there is a couple of GeoCities websites I made as a sure. teenager, which, uh, you know, part of me kind of wishes would vanish forever. But then you look back at them and it's like, it's kind of like finding your old teenage diary again or something. It's really kind of quaint to look back, you know, at a, at a different part of your life and just see it all existing still there. And those, you know, oh, yeah, I have dodgy Annan gifts. And... <laughs> I have an incredibly embarrassing text file from when I was 13, by the way, mm -hmm. sitting on textfiles.com. And the reason I do that is because it's my mental thing to go, you, you you have to take it if you're going to dish it out. So if I'm going to put up old embarrassing files, got to be mine as well. And I am a twerp. I would totally go back and punch that kid out. <laughs> uh, 
that but you know that's that's history that's what puts you there you, nobody wakes up one day and they're nine years old and they're charles dickens and they're charles dickens until they die like that doesn't that's not what people are one of the um, most interesting parts of the Internet Archive is, uh, you know, all these big software collections that you've got. I know uh, recently you um, you put a whole software archive online of, uh, like, Nintendo, like NES games, which uh, must require balls of steel to put like, that kind of stuff online sometimes. I mean, do you get many kind yeah. of um, legal threats and stuff? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, the thing is that in America, the DMCA means that there's a procedure for writing us to say, you suck, and we can either go, you're right, we suck, or we go back with, oh, I don't think we suck. Like it's very, people are very afraid now. There are all of these ro- rules and laws and they're nebulous. And, you know, it's one thing to have a solid, you know, set of properties that are heavily defined that nobody should go near. And we've certainly seen that with Nintendo and Mario anything. But then there's all of this automatic copyright and there's all of this case where, things kind of like fade out and disappear and, and and it's not sure who has it or if it matters anymore. And unfortunately, um, there's not much indication that it'll get any clearer anytime soon. And so um, generally we'll put up a bunch of stuff or people will put up stuff. And then, you know, every day or so we get somebody who comes up and says, actually, that's still a thing. And we go, oh, sorry. And we take it down immediately. Like we don't we don't want a situation where you want to buy the new Justin Bieber album and the first hit for Justin Bieber is here's the free Justin Bieber album. I totally get that. But then you get into a situation where it's like, well, here's a 1983 British video game magazine that ran for four issues before it imploded on itself and somebody has scanned it. And so it's up and we are really not killing anybody's business there. Now, maybe somebody will come along down the line and make a, deluxe director's edition heavily annotated version of that video game magazine and talk to everyone who made it and sell it for you know 15 20 pounds uh and then uh, yeah okay fine then we'll talk but i don't think that's happening like there's a company that only made one video game it's called jack rabbit or jack jack rabbit hmm. and like they only made that one game and it's it, it's up on the archive but like that company's gone and there's really no other evidence that it exists except for that you can play it on the archive and you can play it in the original emulators that we use. Well, there is like a big concern in like the retro gaming um, community at the moment about the preservation of games, you know, that are out now in the future when everything is gradually moving towards digital downloads and it's got like DRM built in. I mean, is that something you've considered or have any ideas on preserving like in, you know, the, the coming decades? Oh yeah. So that's a whole different ball of wax. Another reason I like working in the Apple II stuff is it was pretty simple. Here comes a floppy image of the floppy. We're done here. Uh, It becomes much more problematic when your game depends heavily on, centralized servers that are feeding it vital information. You know, pretty much all the Ubisoft games that come out now rely heavily on their servers. And I have no idea how well they're going to maintain that. Now, there's been some efforts, I would say. Um, I would say, for instance, that um, the Internet Archive has stored away over one million uh, Android apps. We have many hundreds of thousands of iOS programs. They're not publicly accessible because they're still live. Uh, And I do see that people are trying to collect these. So we'll have at least a good core sample of what was out there, certainly the big names. I don't think we should worry too much about 
I mean, I'll, I'll be happy to be wrong, but I mean, I'm not too worried about Farmville. Like, I think people might recreate Farmville to be able to tell the story of Farmville. There are a lot of ones that might slip between the cracks, but the fact is, is if you look historically, my mind was really turned um, at the Prelinger Library. Um, Rick Prelinger does a lot of work with the archive, and um, they have all these wonderful old books. And there's a book that was trademarks of shipping companies in Northeast America from like 1902. And you open it up and it's about 1,000 logos of all these shipping companies. And it really occurs to me that for like many of these logos, that logo in this book may be the only remaining evidence of anything associated with that endeavor. Like nothing. Somebody woke up every morning, kissed his wife, went to work and, and worked on some shipping products all under this name. And then eventually it closed up or was bought and it's gone. There's just no record of it. I think we're going to see a lot of that with Android and iOS games. I think we're going to see it with a lot of other digital games, but you know, one of the ways we deal with that is people record video of games being played, um, which for some people is, we'd all love to have the architectural plans of a certain kind of amusement park that's long gone. But video of that amusement park, that's not so bad. Well, you even started archiving um, viruses with the Malware Museum in the <laughs> last few years. I mean, that, that's quite an interesting idea. Where, where did that come from? Um, that actually came, so I'd already been archiving in such a way to have, um, you know, DOS programs playing and everything else. And I was con uh, contacted by uh, Miko Hippinen, who works for F-Secure, who is a virus researcher for many, many years. And he said, you know, speaking of software, I have some defanged viruses. Wouldn't that be neat to have? And I said, you betcha. And I said, you know, I betcha we could get them to emulate in a browser window. And he went, that would be even neater. So we put up, I think it was like 30 or 40 of them. I mentioned it on Twitter. And something about that just set off that weird journalist thing. Like journalists love the idea of start up a virus in your window of your computer to experience it. Now, <clears throat> we made sure to credit. There, there have been people who have worked with, with Miko and others who have done some amazing historical work with viruses. And, and one of them whose name I'm now forgetting, he has a YouTube channel where he puts up like a vanilla Windows 95 or a vanilla Macintosh and then just starts injecting viruses into it. <laughs> so you watch it get wrecked over the course of time. He's like, just put this in it, crunch. I just put this in it. It's destroying this. Like, it's crazy, but he had been doing this. But something about now experience the power of a virus in your window. And, you know, I was making a joke about Jurassic Park that I was like the scientist in Act One going, and it's totally safe. <laughs> Could never go wrong. Because people were like, isn't that dangerous? And I'm like, maybe, maybe, maybe you're going to have a fun night because your, your web page destroyed your computer. But I don't think so. Um, the ones we put up were defanged. And some people were like, oh, good, you put up defanged ones. At least you don't have any fanged ones. And I was like, no, I've got plenty of fanged ones. I've got plenty of original viruses. I've been saving all sorts of virus archives. That's been a bit I've had a nice debate with a few people about that, about saving working computer viruses. And I'm like, you know, that's just, I mean, it's not like, it's not really my place to say this could have a bad use. So I'm going to wipe out that it ever existed 
anywhere in the face of the earth. Like, that's not my gig. So I have lots of viruses, but, but the ones that we put up were particularly pretty and clever. They had lots of artwork about them or they made music. And people, it's funny, people came along who didn't know about the demo scene or didn't know about all the fun computer graphics tricks people do. And they were just enjoying the graphics tricks. Like I could see people who were just like, wow, did you know that an old MS-DOS machine could do this? And I'm like, oh, you, you should do some research because there are some amazing things out there. But, you know, for tourists, it really was like a museum. It was like they came in, they played it. They went, huh, viruses were weird. I remember getting a virus on my Commodore Amiga and it turned like the mouse pointer went, you know, the, the opposite way to which way you put the mouse. And I was like, what's going on here? It was like. Yeah. Was really- oh, yeah. I mean, and the best part about a lot of these viruses is that they have no way to call home. So they're kind of like self-contained because they know like the person who created them is never going to know that they got fired off. There's no phoning home. So they're very, you know, some of them have contact info. <laughs> like, hi, I infected your computer. Send me a postcard. All right. Well, is there anything about the earliest days of like the of being online or the web that you miss? I think that like a lot of the meeting in person thing I will always miss. Although, of course, I found other ways to make it happen. But but I really did adore that everybody would say, this is great. This is fun. We're having a good time. But what are you doing Wednesday night? And going out. Because, um, especially as the web hit, my weight went up. Like, I actually gained weight after the web because I didn't go out as much. I could see it. I can see the difference. Um and uh, I can uh, count on like one hand the amount of people whose you know memories have persisted, and we've stayed so super close from the '90s, uh, just because other things have come up. Like I, I loved being somebody who was like exploring what's going to come down the pike next, what's going to be here. Like we've we've moved away from like major web changes happening every week to. You know, every half year, Google or Facebook will decide something and we'll all go, ooh, nice, nice. And, and, and it'll be out there, you know, like particularly interesting deep learning or particularly cool computer graphics routines. But it's not like back then when we were like, what is web VR? That is crazy. Oh, my God. You can click on this web page and it'll respond. Or, or the first, you know, I think everybody can remember the first time that Google Maps drops mm. and you can grab a map and move it in your web page. That is insane. Like that's, your brain just explodes. It never goes back to being the same brain. So we don't do that as much because the technology is mature. For but me, um, it was ASL. I, that, was, that was the one for me, age, sex, location. Because you'd be yeah. like, oh my God, I'm talking to someone who's, 15 from America is a girl, you know? It's like, oh, yeah. No, being able to like wake up and find that, you know, a person has an entire other life and is doing many of the same things you are, but then doing other things. Like, it is quite obvious that, um, you know, the real key to world peace is just increased communication. People think it's not, but it's like, like, People are worried that group A and group B will interact and group A will start flinging all of these insults at group B. But what will actually happen is that elements in group A will go, will, will fling insults and other elements in group A will go, oh, ignore them. We, we think they're stupid too. 
and it will help group B realize that group A isn't homogenous and group A will realize group B isn't homogenous. And so I'm like, I love that our communication has gone so much higher than it was, you know, but back then the big discovery was, Oh my goodness, there are other States, <laughs> but, but, but now it's things like, I didn't even know that was an important pat, a patch of land to you. Or I didn't know that that college had this program all these years and I could have assisted with it or something, you know, like that's, that's kind of the magic of now. We should point out that Ravi was 15 as well at the time. Just to sound <laughs> yeah. a bit dodgy before we get any tweets. Oh, that? Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, Jason, we've really appreciated you coming on this week. It's been so interesting getting your stories. You know, we, we could do like another three or four hours with you easy, but thank you so much for joining us. I mean, what, what's going to be the next step for um, Internet Archive then? Is there anything big you're working on right now? Um, the big thing right now with the Archive is mostly um, the Macintosh emulation that we have up and running. I've been working with a guy to put up more and more original Macintosh software so you get the little nine inch screen black and white and having it boot up and work and um you know like the emulation in the archive systems is what I'm kind of focused on right now I think we can do additional cool features and platforms and things and so my hope is that across the next year we'll have a lot of that going on and then you know I think that also the archive continues to serve an incredibly important function in terms of um, political history and political websites. And we happen to have a really good test case in this country for the removal of information and the controlling of information. And the archive is getting all of its little engines tested, which is really nice. You know, people are using us to find old information or to save information before it disappears. So uh, that's continuing. Um, and, and that's, an, a, you know, uh, some people were filled with anxiety as their world shifted out from under them this year. And all I have felt is strength and happiness to be contributing my part towards a group of people who are just trying to save records of history online and a little bit off just to have it like it's a great moment so you know we'll continue to announce cool new collections or cool new projects over the course of the year and hopefully many years to come well, long may continue and that long may i be able to cringe at my geocities website from 1995 <laughs> i hope so i hope i hope we can put it onto uh, i'm thinking like the the big thing of these like carbon um uh, cubes, no quartz cubes. That's it. Quartz cubes <laughs> are like these permanent storage things. They'll store for ten thousand years. That's where that's where we want your stuff. Just sitting in a like titanium capsule, floating through the dead seas of space, heading God knows where. <laughs> oh, those what, dancing babies. Yeah, <laughs> just the dancing baby on the side going through space. That's the image people should leave with. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>